there is a sense that when we become a follower of Jesus, when we choose to respond to the gospel invitation to come and to be made new by the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a sense in which we become a target. We become a target of the evil one. Because, of course, he wants to keep us from making that profession, but if we've made that profession, he wants to keep us from telling other people about the Jesus who has saved us, and the Jesus whom we serve, and the Messiah who we love, and the one to whom we owe our an eternal uh, debt of gratitude. The evil wants, one wants to come and discredit or marginalize us through um, many different ways. He wants to distort the truth. He wants to lead us astray with distortions, half-truths, doubts, and rationalizations against our faith. He wants to draw our sense of purpose away from the church and from the word of God to the things around about us. He wants to try and instill within us uh, that reality that we will truly find peace in and the amassing of material wealth. In short, he will do all he can to move us away from Christ. And the Lord uh, in his mercy has pointed us to this reality, danger, uh, through the words of the Apostle Paul towards the end of this epistle, this letter to the Ephesian church. Remember, uh, Ephesus, third great city in the Roman Empire, uh, a place where it was difficult to be a Christian, a place where the, the, the church was young, it was fledgling, it was fragile. The people were living under the shadow of a false temple to Artemis of the Ephesians, Diana, the false goddess. And it was tough for them. So Paul writes this letter to encourage them. Paul is in chains himself, imprisoned for his faith, and yet cannot stop uh, talking, lauding, exalting the wonder of the God whom he served and the blessings that belong to the Christian when they come to faith that in Christ we are chosen and adopted and reconciled and redeemed and forgiven and secure and that we have access to the greatest power on earth and he says all of these wonderful blessings and then he says all of these blessings mean that you have to exercise your faith you have to showcase the gospel in your life that it's not a theoretical uh, thing it's not it's not an ethereal profession it's got to be very a practical thing faith without deeds is dead, as James wrote. Well, this morning we looked at these, the, the armor of God, the first three items of the armor of God that Paul uh, delineates for us here in chapter 6 as he wraps up this letter and as he exhorts the people in Ephesus to stand firm. The only way that they can stand firm is by uh, donning, by putting on the armor of God, putting off the old self and putting on the new self that is designed to be like good and true righteousness and Holiness, it says in chapter 4 and verse 24. And he says, you have to put on the belt of truth. You are to stand upon the solid doctrines of faith as revealed in the relation of God, which is his word. That you must stand on that truth, that you must know that truth. That you must apply that truth. That you must use that truth as a defensive weapon. And then he says, you must put also on the breastplate of righteousness, the body armor of Christ's righteousness, reminding yourself again and again that you are not righteous in God's sight through any means of your own, 
It's nothing that you or I have done that has made us uh, the people that we are today. There is nothing that we have achieved that has afforded us a place in the kingdom of heaven. But it is through the grace of the Lord in Christ Jesus that we are made presentable. Remember, that's what righteous is, presentable in God's sight. We are able to enter into his presence because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus. We are given that as a gift so that no one can boast, he says in chapter uh, 2. This righteousness bestowed upon us, uh, given to us by Christ. We did not earn it, merit it. It is a gift. And that's the heart of the gospel, isn't it? It's the heart of the Christian faith. That it's not by performance. It's not by religious ritual. It's not by pietistic zeal. It's not by ceremonial rites. Our salvation is a gift from God through the perfect life and the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. That when we surrender our lives to Jesus, he imputes his righteousness to us, and in doing so we are made presentable, though not worthy, before God, the God who is holy and cannot bear to look upon sin. Third, we are to put on the shoes of peace so that we will be ready. We will be prepared. This peace that we get is the result of the righteousness given to us by Jesus. Through the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, we have peace with God and therefore peace with one another. It is anchored to the knowledge of God that we in his word. So all of these things are tied up. Uh, together. And so now we move on to the latter three pieces of armor that we are uh, given here in verses 16 and 17. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming dark evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God and so on. So the fourth piece of armor that he shows us here is the shield of faith. Going back to the uh, allusion, the illustration of the soldier, uh, they had two kind of shi- two kinds of shields uh, in the culture of the day. One shield was smaller; it would be strapped to the forearm. It was really to deflect uh, weapons of the enemy in hand-to-hand combat. But the second kind of shield. The word that is used here in the original language was a shield that was about two and a half feet wide and about four and a half feet high, and it was designed to protect the entire uh, body of the soldier, made from a solid piece of timber um, with uh, metal or oiled leather on it. The men who carried these shields were the ones who were on the front line. So you've seen Rob Roy, you've seen maybe Braveheart, you've seen these guys come to the front of the battle lines, kneel down behind uh, their shields. Uh, They would be the ones who who would cover themselves with their shields from the the arrows, even the flaming arrows of the evil ones, because that's what the the enemy would do. They would coat the tips of their arrow uh, with cloth that had been soaked in some kind of flammable material. They would light them, and then they would fire them towards the advancing or retreating uh, force. And so these shields that the men had were to deflect and to extinguish, ultimately, the flaming darts of uh, the enemy. And it's a great knowledge. It's a great um, picture for us, isn't it? It's a great image. It's quite vivid. 
uh, that, that the evil one, that Satan, that the devil is constantly hurling at us, flaming arrows of temptation and doubt and anxiety and fear. He tempts us to immorality and he tempts us to, to be proud and to, to be envious and, and to have hatred and bitterness within us, to compromise to tolerate, to move away from the word. He, he, he leads us towards deception and millions of other things. And the way to handle these temptations is with the shield of faith. But what does that mean? What does faith mean? It's important that we define what the word faith means and what it doesn't mean. Some people would say that faith is merely wishful thinking. It's hoping for the best. In their mind, uh, faith is synonymous with a positive mental attitude. It's the kind of person that's uh, got the glass half full. Well, that's not really what faith is at all, is it? To have faith is to put your trust, your hope, and your belief into something. It's to lean your whole weight against something. I do not have faith that if I put my whole weight against this lectern, that it will hold me up. If I put one hand on it, it falls down. However, I have every, I have every faith, I'm not going to do it, that if I got up on this table, that it would hold me as large as I am. This is a solid table. I do not have faith in this, but I do have faith in that. I have faith that I sit on this pew, it is going to hold up my weight. You see, it's not the faith that is important. It is the object of our faith which is important. Faith must have an object. Now, for some people, that object may be their positive mental attitude. But then what happens when their positive mental attitude is troubled by a nervous breakdown through no fault of their own, through means that were beyond their control. But nevertheless, they are under a force that's too much to bear. Their object of faith has failed. For some, the object of their faith is their family. That's who they will put their trust and their hope in, relying that their children will be the people who will achieve only all the dreams that they had what happens when an illness strikes, when the child is taken from them, or when the child doesn't want to follow in the father's footsteps, or when the child falls into a harmful lifestyle and is alienated from the family, what happens? Their life crumbles because the object of faith has failed. People put their faith in many things. We could be here all night discussing it, their abilities, their resources, their reputation. But what happens when faculty fails or when resources diminish or when reputation is tarred? Faith is lost. Biblical faith is quite different to these things. Because biblical faith means having your hope, having your trust, having your belief, putting all of your weight upon the sovereign God of the universe, our Creator. Biblical faith is having a sure and steady and unwavering confidence in the God who has called us, the one who embodies justice and authority and holiness and righteousness. 
Biblical faith is something much greater and deeper than mere wishful thinking. We're not glass half empty or glass half full. The Christian is, my cup is running over. Biblical faith is a sure, firm-footed, evidentially supported faith in the creator and sustainer of the universe. The, the God who does not fail. The, the God who does not falter. Uh, the God who will not change. The God who is eternal from everlasting to everlasting. Who was and is and is yet to come. The God who uh, has not changed and will not change. Yesterday, today, or forever. The one who inhabits all space, time, and eternity. The Bible says, faith is confident. The confidence that we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about the things we cannot see. Hebrews 1. Hebrews 11, verse 1. So this faith, this biblical faith, leads the believer... To what God says. And it leads us to trust in what he has promised. Even when we don't necessarily understand what that means. I wonder this evening where your trust is. I wonder this evening what the object of your faith is. What are you trusting in, leaning upon, hoping in, believing? If it's not the Lord, if it's not the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior, can they compare to the character and the consistency of a holy God? Every temptation, every fiery dart of the evil one that we encounter is actually a temptation for us to doubt and to mistrust God. Many people say they trust in God. But when times get rough, when comforts are taken away, when life is threatened, when belief begins to start to cost people, that's when we begin to find out what the true nature of somebody's faith is. Are we using God because of the perceived blessings that we may get out of him? Or are we using the things that we have to serve God? So the key here is that we must have faith in God rather than in ourselves rather than in the things that we have which are all blessings from God rather than the the physical means that we are blessed with we take up the shield of faith believing in resting in putting all of our weight upon God and his promises knowing that he is in control look through the bible Daniel 4, Nehemiah 9, Chronicles 9. God is in control. That he loves you. That he loves me. That there is nothing in this world that can separate us from that love. Romans 8. That he never, ever makes a mistake. In other words, we can trust God. We can trust his character. And his promise, much more than we can trust our circumstances or dread the thought, our feelings. Get that? We trust God's promise over our feelings. We trust his character over our circumstances. 
we ascribe to the fact that his ways are not our ways. And that he has a perspective that is divine. And that is above and beyond anything that we can understand on the earthly plane. But we can trust in him knowing that he is good. Psalm 136. That's the faith that provides a shield for us when things are hard. That is the shield that we have to pick up. That we have to hold over our heads to deflect and extinguish the flaming doubts of temptation. It's the faith that we see throughout Scripture, isn't it? Throughout the Bible, the men of faith. You think about the significant people contained within the revelation of God and think about how they had faith in their God. They rested in him for all of their faults. Noah built the ark as instructed, even though he didn't live anywhere near uh, water and though it's quite possible the world had never seen a flood at that time, he built it. He had faith. And what God had said was true. Abraham left his comfortable home to follow God's leading. Abraham believed that God would give him a son as he promised, even though he was a hundred years old. And then willing to sacrifice that son for God, even though it seemed to derail the promise of God. Moses confronted Pharaoh, even though he didn't want to. Gideon went to war with only 300 men. David faced a giant with only a sling and a pebble. Elijah faced off 400 prophets of Baal. Ezekiel did all kinds of weird things because God told him to. Hosea married a prostitute and loved her even when she was unfaithful to him. The disciples took a lunchbox full of food to Jesus and he fed 20,000 hungry people. The disciples refused to, to stop preaching Jesus and his gospel even when faced with prison and indeed death and many events the very same thing we could tell stories this evening about the people who have been martyred for their faith uh, in Jesus those who have been threatened with death because of their proclamation of Christ why would they do that because they have faith their trust is in the Lord and there is nothing that can deflect that like the shield, uh, deter them from that because they take up the shield of faith to divert and extinguish the flaming arrows. Real faith, real trust, real hope, belief, and and leaning upon the Lord Jesus extinguishes the flaming darts of temptation and doubt. So we are to pick up the shield of faith. We are also to don the helmet of salvation. Now, when the Bible talks about salvation, it's talking not only about being forgiven of our sin. In other words, salvation is not just a flash-in-the-pan event. It's not a one-time deal. It's not one day I prayed a prayer, one day I walked down an aisle, one day I went to the front, one day I responded to an altar call. Salvation is the ongoing process of God working within the lives of his people because salvation has an element in the past, an element in the present, and will have an element in the future. What do I mean? Well, God has cleansed us from our sin, past. God is cleansing us from the power of sin through his spirit in the present. 
and he will finally, fully, completely cleanse us of our sin when we stand before him and are welcomed into his eternal, eternal kingdom. So in other words, we have to remind ourselves that we're not there yet. We're not home yet. We have to don the helmet of salvation. Um, this is maybe a dangerous move, but I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis here using the illustration of a woman putting on makeup. Uh, that I think is quite helpful. He writes, A woman puts on makeup early in the morning to be ready for the day ahead. The problem is that what looks good in the dim light of the morning will not look good in the light of the day. So, she uses a makeup mirror to emulate the light of the day. In a sense, she prepares herself for the light that is yet to come. In a sense, that's what it means to put on the hope of salvation, to put on the helmet of salvation. It means to live in the light of what you know is coming. This is the difference between the believer and the world. The world lives only in the dim light of the present. They assume everything will continue as it always has. The believer should be living with the realization that there is a coming day when the curtain will come crashing down and God's irresistible light will shine and his glory will reveal everything. The believer lives in light of this reality. The helmet of salvation is a guard upon our mind, you could say. The helmet reminds us that this world, this life, is not all that there is. The helmet reminds us to live lives in light of eternity. The helmet reminds us that today is the day of favor, as we read in Second Corinthians 6. Today is the day of salvation. I wonder if we all know that. I wonder if we know the favor of God. Do you know the favor of God in your life? Are you safe for eternity? If you're called from this life to eternity, yet this evening, will you hear those wonderful welcome words of Jesus? Well done, good and faithful servant. Or will you hear the alternative? Away from me, for I never knew you. Are we presuming upon the favor of God? Are we presuming that we will have another opportunity? That may not be the case. A couple of weeks ago, a Church of Scotland minister named Johnny Payton, ministered in the four churches of Scotland in Mull, traveled to Westeros, where we live. It was a week that himself and his wife, Kathy, had been looking forward to, some downtime. He had a birthday approaching. They were going to do some walking, play some golf, read and spend some much-needed downtime together. He dropped Kathy, his wife, off in Al- uh, on Monday and set off for Anchalach, uh, a large uh, hill over near Dundonald. Time to bag his 130-something Monroe before a significant birthday. It's a sunny day, reasonably warm, rapidly changeable weather, nothing new in the West Highlands of Scotland. He was well prepared. He was well experienced. He had the correct clothing and food set off. He spoke to his wife, Kathy, a number of times as he ascended the hill. A beautiful day up here, he relayed by uh, mobile. A text later in the afternoon confirmed the same. But that was it. 
That was the last time that Kathy heard from her husband. Communication ceased. He hadn't returned by his due time. Indeed, by 10 o'clock that night, his phone was unresponsive. And his body was recovered from the mountain early Tuesday morning somewhere. We don't know the exact circumstances of what happened, but we know the outcome. The outcome is that Mr. Payton is now in eternity. And sitting in the rented accommodation with that woman waiting on news of her son, looking ironically directly at that mighty mountain, was a horrifying and traumatic and very surreal experience for that poor woman who had seen her husband off on a walk like she had done hundreds of times previously. But this time he never came back. Kathy will never see him again in this life. The congregations in Mull are bereft of a pastor. It was just a walk. Just a walk. It's a regular holiday. It was just another day. Was it expected? No. Was it anticipated? No. Today is the day of favor, and today is the day of salvation. Have you donned salvation? Are you living in light of the reality that this could be the day where the Lord calls you home? Are you living with your eyes on the future and the light that is to come, as opposed to just the dim light of the present? So we are to take up the shield, we are to don the helmet, and finally we are to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And again, just as we do that, it's about taking it up and take the helmet of salvation, put it on, and take the sword of the Spirit, pick up uh, the Word. Remember, having the belt of truth was uh, having a foundation built upon the Word of God. It's relying on the Word of God. It's knowing uh, the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit then takes this a step further. Rather than uh, merely living by the truth as a foundation, the sword of the Spirit is about knowing the Bible and being able to use it to our advantage, not just as a defense, but also as an offense using it to defeat the enemy, the enemy who comes and whispers doubts in our minds. Jesus showed us perfectly that, didn't he? Jesus himself was tempted by the devil. And every time he was tempted, the three times that he was tempted, how did he respond? For it is written. I don't have time to go into all of the uh, temptations Uh, that Jesus endured. But he responded back to Deuteronomy, didn't he? People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You must not test the Lord your God. You must worship the Lord your God and serve only him away from me, Satan. See, the difference between uh, the belt of truth and the sword of the Spirit is between having a belief in the Bible as the truth on which we stand and having a working knowledge of the Scripture so that we can use it in specific ways to protect ourselves when we are tempted. And we do that by knowing the Word, by engaging with the Word, by reading the Word carefully, 
by discussing it with our brothers and sisters, by engaging in Bible study, by memorizing it, by using it as their primary tool to fight against the forces of evil that are prevalent in our lives. Because when we rely on what the Bible says, we're not relying on our own strength, we're relying on His strength. We're not relying on our wisdom, but we're relying on His wisdom. And that makes us much stronger people. The object of our faith, the object of the Word, is the Lord Himself. And yet many people don't avail themselves of this perhaps most important piece of armor. Many fail to ground themselves in the truth of God's Word. Many uh, people fail to use God's Word to their advantage. And sadly, It's even crept into churches that trivialize, nullify, and turn away from the Word of God. I wonder about you this evening. Are you a Bible person? Are you one who delights in the Word of God? Are we a Bible-believing church? Well, yes. Are we careful to defend that? Are we careful to devote ourselves to that, are we saturated in Scripture and therefore able to stand and stand firm? All of the armor has been provided for us. We don't have to go out and manufacture these things. We don't have to make provision. He says, all you've got to do is put them on. You know, a car manufacturer uh, provides all kinds of safety devices for their vehicles, but you know, if we don't put on the seatbelts, if we don't pay attention to the warning lights, then things are going to end badly for us more often than not. So here's the question we're left at at the end of today as we've considered uh, this teaching from Paul by the Lord. Are you engaging all of the tools that God has given you to withstand the assault of the evil one? Are you working to truly understand, to grasp, to clarify, to know the gospel that you profess as your own? Are you putting your hope in God rather than in yourself? Are you doing what he tells you to do rather than making a plan for yourself? Are you trusting him even when the walls around about you are crashing down? Even when relationships are crumbling Even when sin seems to be overtaking, are you trusting in him? And is your sword sharp and ready for the battle? Or is it dull and rusty, perhaps even misplaced? So here's the challenge to you this evening. Look through these pieces of armor and do an inventory check. Stock check. Make sure you're fully prepared. Study this passage more carefully. Reflect on these things more often. Because of this, you can be sure. Regardless of whether or not we are prepared, our opponent is. And he is fully armed. And he is extremely dangerous. But we have all of the necessary means to withstand and to defeat him by the grace of our Lord Jesus. And for that, 
we give thanks. Let's pray. Father God, we give thanks for the provision made for us in your word. We pray that we would be those who are anchored in the truth, those who rely upon the righteousness of Jesus, those who stand with a readiness, with shoes of peace, that we uh, would be a people, Lord God, that use your armor to our benefit, that we would hold the shield of faith up, deflecting and extinguishing the fiery darts of the evil one, that we would don the helmet of salvation and that you would protect us and that we would engage the sword of the Spirit to be used as a defensive and also an offensive measure. Lord, enable us in this, teach us in this, remind us of these truths, and may we make use of the greatest weapon of all, that prayer which is ours. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Bless us. Be with us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.